Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, it's big business sneakers. In fact, it's a $79 billion global industry. But there's a barrier when it comes to access and equity in ownership. It dawned on me, it's like, there's not a lot of Black owners on the retail side that has a relationship with all the brands. And we are the number one consumer. That conversation coming up in just a moment. Also, the Atlanta mayoral race now includes former Mayor Kasim Reed. And we'll check in with a Georgia grower about this summer's fruit crops. All that's coming up. But first this, there's one finalist for the Georgia State University presidency, The Board of Regents of the University System of Georgia is announcing Dr. M. Brian Blake as the finalist. Blake is currently Executive Vice President for Academic Affairs and Provost of George Washington University in Washington, D.C. He's also a Georgia native now. Dr. Blake received a Master of Science in Electoral Engineering from Mercer University here in Atlanta and a Bachelor of Electoral Engineering from Georgia Tech. And in other news, another Georgia resident has been arrested on charges stemming from the January 6th insurrection at the nation's capital. 46-year-old Kevin Creek of Alpharetta is charged with federal offenses including assaulting or impeding officers, physical violence on capital grounds, and obstruction of law enforcement. According to court documents, Creek traveled to Washington, D.C. on January 5th carrying mace and a boot knife. Creek was also caught on body cam footage punching and kicking uniformed officers. The Department of Justice says they have arrested approximately 465 people on charges related to the January 6th riot. And finally, it's Game 3 of the Atlanta Hawks and Philadelphia 76ers playoff series tonight. The series is tied one game apiece. Atlanta will have to continue in the playoffs without Hawks forward DeAndre Hunter, who will miss the rest of the postseason Due to a torn lateral meniscus in his right knee, the Hawks making the announcement Wednesday. This is Closer Look. Ah, yes, I remember that well. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Yes, my Adidas and the sneaker industry. Name the brand and it's sure to have a following. Here's something else. The sneaker industry is big business. In fact, according to Fast Company, the global sneaker market was valued at $79 billion in 2020. So it appears there's enough of the sneaker industry to go around in terms of profit. There's a new initiative to bring more diversity into the sneaker industry, moving from consumers to ownership through franchising. It's called the START program, and it was recently launched by sneaker retailer The Athlete's Foot. And START stands for the Strategic African American Retail Track. Joining me now to talk more about the initiative is Darius Billings, marketing executive and the creator of the START program. Darius, welcome to the program. No, thanks for having me. So Darius, recall for me, I know it's in your memory, that one pair of sneakers, that one brand that you had to have, that you begged your parents to get. Tell me the brand. Tell me the sneaker. Yeah, so the brand was uh, Nike and brand Jordan, and it was the Air Jordan 3, uh, the Black Cement, the original Mm -hmm. in 1988. And um, I first saw it in a music video, and it was uh, Boogie Down Productions, uh, My Philosophy, Mm KRS-One. He stepped out the Jeep in that video, and he had the shoes on it. And at first you just saw the the, the front of it and the side, you didn't know what they were because they didn't have a swoosh or anything, but then they finally panned to the back and it had that Nike Air on the back. Let's begin. What, where, why, or when? We'll all be explained like instructions to a game. 
So right then, I went straight to my father, begged him, said I had to have these. I looked at my East Bay magazine, because where I grew up, there was really no good sneaker stores at all. So mm -hmm. I used to have to order stuff through East Bay magazine, because I lived in a, a rural area. Couldn't wait till that issue came out. So the issue came, finally got it at the house, and my dad, you know, went in and, and ordered the shoes for me. And back then it was mail order. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there was no credit card over the internet and, or, or none of that. So that was definitely one of those ones that I had to have that when I transitioned into like the fashion of the sneaker, because mm -hmm. I always grew up playing sports and had my basketball shoes. But when I finally looked at it as fashion, it was that AJ3 black cement. And see, for me, I remember wanting the shoes for to improve my athletic ability. So when Bo Jackson's, mm. those Bo Jackson's trainers, the cross trainers came out, that, they were like cross trainers. I can play basketball and tennis and yeah. maybe do a little track work. And so yeah. I remember going to my dad and saying, I want to get these Bo Jackson cross trainers. And my dad was like, well, Bo Jackson going to buy them? And I was like, <laughs> you mentioned Boogie Down Productions, KRS-One. Coming into the segment, of course, we played my Adidas, Run DMC, um, talk about product placement. And this goes into my next question because it's a big business. And I know that you started your career in merchandising in the 90s. Could you ever imagine to where this industry is right now, Darius? No, I mean, definitely couldn't imagine because especially back then I was more kind of focused nationally. But then just to have that global view and global experience as well and just see how um, from a global standpoint, the sneaker industry just blew up and it's and still it's all based on, you know, black culture and black influence mm -hmm. um, here in America. You know, I have a friend, I say his name, Jay, who has a pair of sneakers. I won't mention the brand. Mm -hmm. You probably know, but there's an app that controls the shoelaces. He can adjust the shoe depending on what you're doing. I know, it's crazy. An app for sneakers. Yeah. Before we get into the START program, I do want to get your thoughts on the marketing around sneakers because it's no longer just athletes. Clearly the hip hop culture, as you yeah. mentioned, has always embraced sneakers. Mm -hmm. How much credit should go to the influence of hip hop to where the sneaker industry is right now in terms of this, this global bonanza? I mean, they need a lot of credit and it's deserving because the the bonanza comes from the what we call like the sports wear or the lifestyle kind of side of it where people are rocking it from style and not for performance. Previously, people would want to aspire to be Michael Jordan, Allen Iverson and, and those players and want to wear their shoes to actually go play on the basketball courts where when it when you got had a run DMC or like you had. Karis One, Nelly with the Air Force One song and all other influencers from the hip hop culture wearing product, that's what really made it that fashion piece and that fashion statement. So they definitely deserve a larger credit than what they have kind of received when it comes to the influence and the growth of the sneaker culture and industry. And Darius, given that sneakers can be quite expensive and mm -hmm. tragically, we know that crimes, including murders, yeah have been committed over sneakers through your lens. Mm -hmm. Can the sneaker industry still have this huge revenue intake if some of the brands were to produce reasonably lower price styles for some of these crimes, folks have, they wanted the shoes. Yeah. I'm not putting the blame on the sneaker company, right. mm -hmm. all the apparel brands, but what's your take on all that? Yeah, that that's, it, it's a good question. And I don't think it's necessarily lowering pricing more than the supply and demand. You know, if there is a little bit more supply, then you won't have as much, but then you have to weigh, will those shoes be cool? Because there is too much supply, you know, and that demand isn't there. I don't think lowering prices necessarily is issue because right now you have people spending way above retail, you know, with these resellers out there that's spending like three, four, five, six hundred dollars up to like two, three, four, five, six thousand dollars for shoes that would normally retail for 190 if you can get your hands on them at a retail store. So the industry is definitely kind of shifted and 
again, price point, I don't think is, is, is necessarily the, the issue. We know that Blacks are the top consumers and influencers of sneakers yeah. and ath- athletic apparel. But as you all put it, quote, are not represented in positions of leadership or profit. I'm just curious if you know, percentage wise, in terms of ownership within the athletic apparel industry, how big is the gap between other races and Black owners? You know what? I, I don't have those statistics. I just personally know just being in the industry of the amount of Black-owned retailers that actually have a relationship with all the strategic or the main brands, right? So your Nike, Nike including Jordan, your Adidas, your Puma, to really have a true sneaker retail store, having all of those brands and having a relationship with all those brands, there's only a handful of Black-owned uh, retailers in the United States or in the world, honestly. And this is where the START program comes in and looks to change that. How did this concept come about? You know what? It um, it was a little over a year ago, really on the height of the Black Lives Matter movement. A group of uh, friends and family, we got together, you know, after all the tragedies and specifically after um, the conversation specifically started after the Rayshard Brooks uh, murder here in Atlanta. We got together just to console, which a lot of Black people got together and, and just to console one another, to have dialogue and, and discuss. So friends and family just, we talked about change and talked about Black business and ownership and how we just need more Black business in general. And then we talked about platform and using our platforms if we have one. And we don't do enough of using our, our platforms to, to help foster change. So I took that conversation back and kind of looked at the industry that I'm in. It it dawned on me, it's like, you know what? There's not a lot of Black owners on the retail side that has a relationship with with all the the brands. And we are the number one consumer. So the athlete's foot, and and, that's my platform. So the, the issue was big, right? It's the whole U.S. So I just happen to work at the athlete's foot, who happens to be the only franchise model within the sneaker industry. So we have the ability to grow Black ownership within this industry under Start Program and and bringing on uh, Black franchisees. If you're just joining us, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott, and I'm in conversation with Darius Billings. He's a marketing executive with the sneaker retailer, The Athlete's Foot. And we're talking about a new initiative to bring more diversity into the sneaker industry. Darius, let's talk about the steps here in this START program. So the idea candidates, and I want to definitely make it clear that it's not just a, a free-for-all open. You definitely have to bring something to the table. But retail is a tough business. Just because you have a passion for sneakers, doesn't mean you have that same passion for retail and for business. So it's definitely a a, a tough business to get into. We are definitely looking for people who have some type of operational experience when it comes to to retail. Definitely still have to have a passion for the industry and for sneakers. Have to bring uh, a part of the community because that's really the big thing about this program as well and how our franchisees are really entrenched and and support the local community. So you have to have that passion and and, and wherewithal to be be able to build up the community. You have to have some, some, some bit of capital as well. We are definitely trying to, to help channel that. The three things that we see that are barriers, lack of resources, lack of capital, and lack of information. So those are the three things that we're trying to help tear down those barriers. Well, that being said, you just mentioned they have to have a little bit of capital. What's a little bit? Yeah. I mean, again, this is an opportunity. It's really to, to open up a store, you need about anywhere from like 200 to 300,000 to really open up a store and not saying that's, that's what you need in your pocket, but to, to have access to that. And that's store build out. It's everything, you know, initial inventory. It's a lot of money, Darius. You, know, you just said it, you know. It that, is. That's yeah. a lot of money. And as you just yeah. said, you know, coming in with capital is a major barrier. So will you yeah. all be able to help folks, these idea candidates, yeah. 
guide them in seeking that money? Because as you know, bank loans don't always come to folks. Exactly. And I think, and, and that's the one thing that I'm doing currently is reaching out to financial institutions that actually have programs for black entrepreneurs, you know, with us and, and within franchising at the end of the day, it will, the relationship will be between that potential franchisee and the financial institution. We can't really get involved because it's their business, but I want to create that pathway to, to make it easier for them. So I am working with different financial institutions to say, Hey, this is the program. We have this thing called the FDD, which is a franchise disclosure document, which we have to disclose everything, you know, even our, the, the financials and average stores and all that stuff. So that's what a lot of financial institutions look to see, Hey, how do these stores do? And one of the things is I'm actually working with these financial institutions up front to say, Hey, here's, you know, here's what, here's the program. Here's what we're doing. And I think it's a good time because a lot of financial institutions now have programs for minorities um, and black entrepreneurs and want to support that. So I think being able to foster that relationship and help guide that. um, And then it'll be a little easier because of the franchise model. It's not, hey, I'm opening up Darius's shoes. I'm actually being a part of this organization that will help support me throughout the lifetime of my being a franchisee. You also are going to pair folks with mentors, correct? Correct. Another beautiful thing about franchising is that not just the office staff that supports in the different departments, but our franchisees, peer-to-peer or relationship. So, and that's the other good thing. And one of the things about the athlete's foot and, and just franchising in general is that you're part of a concept. And it's already built out. You're not reinventing the wheel. And that's where we see that support comes in. Darius Billings is the veteran marketing executive creator of the program. And it's through the athlete's foot. Darius, thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for having me. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. We're just about to the end of strawberry season here in Georgia. By that, I mean the time frame when crops are ready to be picked or harvested here in the state. Keep in mind, seasons can change. I think there's a song about that. Anyway, because the weather and unforeseen occurrences like a pandemic can affect more than the crops, but also the operation of the crops. Also, a crop can thrive in one part of Georgia and not so well in another. So now it's time for blueberries. Let's check in with Kevin Mitchum, co-owner of Mitchum Farm, members of the Georgia Strawberry Growers Association and the Georgia Fruit and Vegetable Growers Association. Kevin Mitchum, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I know it's busy for you. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. Let's begin here because the Mitchum Farm is more than just a business. It's a family business, correct? How many generations of growers are we talking about? Mm, this this farm was in uh, my family in probably in the 1840s. Uh, we were one of the oldest farms in Georgia. My great-great-granddaddy had a dairy uh, early on. So starting with the dairy and then have you all, have berries always been the product for all these generations? Uh, no, uh, it's, it was, uh, it went from dairy to cattle. And then about, probably about 14 years ago, we decided to do berries. When you do cows, you need to do a lot bigger volume than mm-hmm. the land that we have. So to make it work and to make a, a profit, 
cattle just needed to be a bigger volume than what we could do. So berries, strawberries and blueberries and blackberries take less land. And with the uh, increasing population around us, strawberries and other berries were the kind of the choice to be sustainable in a farming operation. That's understandable. You don't have to worry about vet bills either. That's right. Let me ask you this. Are you all wholesalers? Who are your consumers here? Mainly you pick right at the moment. Uh, just just families coming out, enjoying the farm and picking their own fruits uh, or their own berries. We do sell locally to some small restaurants, uh, some small produce stands. Mm-hmm. Um, your bigger box stores, uh, that's not impossible to sell to them, but it's a, just an entirely different business mm-hmm. when you start selling uh, bigger grocery store chains. That makes sense. Let me ask you this. Uh, what was last year like for you all? Oddly enough, it was crazy. Yeah. We were the only people. <laughs> yeah, it was opposite of what you may think. Uh, we were the only people open, and we was an outside event or an uh, outside activity, and uh, it really helped us. We, we were uh, probably double twice as busy as we, our normal a normal year. We really got caught off guard by the crowds. How many employees do you have? Or is it mostly family members? It really varies, you know, and we're really seasonal. Probably me and my dad and one full-time on the farm, and then our market, which is seasonal, we don't do anything in the winter. Mm-hmm. And then June, August and September, we don't have anything to pick. So our market can vary from like one person up to maybe eight. During the peak of the strawberry season, we cook donuts and have soft serve ice cream and <laughs> and do slushies. We could have eight people working in our market on a busy, or even, well, I say eight, maybe 10 or 12 on a busy Saturday. Then, you know, you come to the winter months, uh, it may just come back down to our, just our me and daddy and one employee, depending on the season. You know, it can be, it changes greatly, you know, from peak of strawberry season to the dead of winter, you know, it can go from 12 to one, you know, employees. You said the volume of folks coming out caught you all off guard. You were the only ones that were open. Can you tell me how are your neighbors doing? How are your fellow farmers and growers? How are they doing? And was it, was it difficult to watch what they were going through and you all were experiencing such growth in, in terms of people coming out and picking berries? I think it, I know that all the, the agritourism type operations and all your UPIC operations were up in, in sales because it was just an outdoor event. You know, uh, all your theme parks and amusement parks were closed. People were looking to get out and do something. I think all your, uh, like I say, agritourism event uh, facilities were doing well. Uh, on the other side of that, it may be like the uh, your commodity farmers, like uh, your onion growers and Vidalia, were having trouble getting help. Migrant workers, I think, were having trouble getting into uh, getting into the area to pick onions and peaches. And your larger farmers had trouble getting help. Yeah, because of COVID, I can imagine. How are things now for? your fellow growers and farmers out there this year? How's it looking for them? It's still up a little bit so far as sales, but, you know, it's, it's headed back to normal, which I don't know. We don't know what normal is now. It seems people are back in school. They're back at work. So, you know, we're, we're having, we're not having crowds during the week like we did last year. Last year, you know, we could have a, a Tuesday that would be better than our previous year's weekend. Hmm. Uh, you know, because people was out of school, they was out of work. Mm-hmm. You know, this year, it's um seems to be our weekdays are back to kind of a normal weekday. Our weekends are really busy because people are are off work, so mm-hmm. it's it's going a little bit back to normal. So let me ask you this: How was this year's strawberry crops? Before we get to the blueberries, how was this year's strawberry crop? It was good. We did do what we did last year for our sales. I say we had some busy weekends. We're still picking. Mm-hmm. There's still a few out there. You know, if you bend over and move the leaves back, you, you'll be able to find a bucket and 
not very long. They produce well. Good weather. We don't like a lot of rain on our berries. The rain doesn't help the uh, actual fruit itself. It mm. causes the mold and mildew, the diseases to start to grow. So we had a, a fairly dry spring. Strawberries did right, quite well. All right. Well, then let's move on. Let's talk about what's the projected outlook for this year's blueberries. I think the blueberries are not going to do as well. We had a late freeze. Uh, we going to have blueberries, but we had a late sometime mid-April, uh, a night that it got down to about 32 degrees. It killed a few of our blooms. Mm. So it got maybe, I don't know, 30% of the crop here. A lot of the big blueberry growers in, the jo- in Georgia are waste farther south but i do know that cold snap got a few of the peach i I did hear this week that it got a few of the peach growers and it thinned them out you know and it got i did talk to one apple grower up in lj and they lost a lot of apple blooms due to that cold one night it got cold in mid-april and we got blackberries coming along blackberries there's turning you could pick a few blackberries today it's blackberries are just starting and should go about a month. I got to tell you, I love blackberries. Uh, Kevin, what do you want folks to know about the importance of buying local or as we call Georgia grown? What do you want folks to know about the importance of that? Well, you know, it helps your local economy. It keeps your community sustainable. We turn around and spend the money and buy local stuff too. So it, it keeps your money kind of local. And finally, I have to ask, Kevin, what's the favorite way you enjoy blueberries? Ice cream, pie, preserve, juice. What's your favorite? I think the official name is called a blueberry crunch. And you can take blueberries. You have to look it up. You can take blueberries and put them in a pan and you put some crushed pineapple. And then you sprinkle a yellow cake mix on top of that. Oh, and you put pecans, chopped pecans in it, and then a yellow cake mix, and then pour over a stick of melted butter, okay. and you cook it in the oven. It's called a blueberry crunch, and it <laughs> has pineapple, pecans, yellow cake mix, and I think a stick of butter. Kevin, a and stick then, of butter. And then put a scoop of vanilla ice cream on top of that, and uh, you'll be set. I am going to encourage my listeners to try out that recipe Send it to me. Send me a picture of it and let me know how it works out. I may try to. Kevin Mitchum, co-owner of Mitchum Farms, members of the Georgia Strawberry Growers Association and the Georgia Fruit and Vegetable Growers Association. Kevin, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. And uh, best of luck to you all and, and all your, your neighbors out there who are supplying not only just fruits and vegetables, but all kinds of products for folks up here in the Atlanta area like me. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. continues now here on 90.1 WABE. I'm Rose Scott. Count them. There are six candidates, for now, running in Atlanta's mayoral race. Former Atlanta Mayor Kasim Reed has a campaign fund and is now listed on the Georgia Campaign Finance Commission website. Reed is hosting a birthday party for himself and also a fundraiser, according to an invitation that he sent out. That's going to take place tonight. It is expected Reed will publicly announce during his birthday celebration today that, yes, he is running for mayor. But it's kind of a worst kept secret. Atlanta-based campaign strategist and closer look politics contributor Fred Hicks joins me as this Atlanta mayoral candidates list is getting longer and longer. Fred, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Rose. Glad to be here. At first, there were the rumors, then the strategic social media posts. Now it's pretty much confirmed. Kasim Reed is in. Your thoughts? Well, I think that this is the first real day of the mayor's race uh, for 2021 since Mayor Bottoms announced that she is not running for re-election. So now it gets real. Now you're going to see the real money go where it's going to go, and you're going to see strategies unfold. And since the last time we spoke, Council Members Antonio Brown and Andre Dickens are also in. Uh, Your thoughts on those two candidates jumping into the race? 
Well, I think it'll be interesting. Both of them are considered West Side candidates with Antonio Brown representing a West Side district and Andre Dickens being someone who went to Georgia Tech and resides in the West Side. So it'll be interesting to see how, how that works out along with Felicia Moore, the council president, who used to represent a district over there. So the West Side has a lot of representation. So it'll be interesting to see how that, that vote divides. And then what happens with the East Side, which is where you've seen a lot of the growth in the voter population. So through your lens, because he's a former mayor, two-term mayor, and folks are familiar with him, you think now that this adds a little bit more to this race? So donors will not be able to sit on the sidelines. Before Mayor Reed uh, decided to make it official with the filing yesterday, people were kind of hedging their bets and waiting and watching. But first of all, you're going to see the donor class make decisions now. Either you're with him or you're against him, whether that's supporting any one of the other candidates. So that's number one. I think number two, you're going to see a lot of national attention on this race now. Uh, Mayor Reed is a national figure. Uh, he has a lot of ties to the entertainment community. So I think you're going to see um, a lot of national attention. And thirdly, a lot of star power aligned in this race. So um, it's going to be interesting. You'll see a lot of attention. You'll see a lot of things that are uh, a lot of money moved. And then lastly, I believe that we're about to see the renewal of the negative campaign season that ended on January 5th with our Senate elections. We're gonna be right back at this now in July. Let's recap the field here. I mentioned council members Antonio Brown and Andre Dickens, also current city council president Felicia Moore, attorney and former top official Mayor Bill Campbell's administration, Sharon Gay. And then there's also an unknown Walter Reeves along with obviously former Mayor Kasim Reed. Might this list get any longer? Fred, are we going to be looking at what we saw uh, last go around with more than a dozen folks running for mayor? Or do you think this is it? Or will Kasim Reed's entry into this race maybe prompt some other names out there that we've been hearing? Well, you know, I think that every serious candidate is in the race now because it takes money. It takes millions of dollars to run for mayor of Atlanta. We talked about that last time. And uh, that we were on, and uh, you're just simply not going to be able to raise the money in what is basically four months' time to compete in the mayor's race. So you might get a, a regular citizen, so to speak, uh, who's never held office before, who decides to file. Uh, and we saw a lot of that in 2017. But I don't think you're going to see any other major candidate get out there and run. And you have another uh, a seat out there. You have the post three at large seat. If someone mm -hmm. is interested in that, that Andre Dickens is giving up. Um, you have that out there. And so I'm hearing names for that that might get in that race. But I think for Mayor, you've, uh, you've seen the last of the heavyweights getting in there. Is there an advantage, Fred, for those who are currently on council and even in terms of visibility and having a little bit more free airtime if they want to comment on some legislation, they may be able to drop in. That's why I'm running for mayor or... Yeah. You know, it's taboo to, to take that last step, but it certainly is the norm. And we saw that in the past, at the past, uh, most recent. Well, what season. is taboo ever stopped someone when it comes to <laughs> campaigning? Come on now. Well, you know, down here in the South, we're a little bit more genteel. Now, maybe in New York. Oh, or, don't start that. Don't, no, nah, you know, don't. We have a little bit of hospitality to ourselves. You just said we had a nasty Senate runoff race. I mean, but it's, uh, <laughs> in all seriousness, though. I think that with the, the the tone and tenor of the campaign is going to be really ugly initially because, listen, if you're any one of these other candidates, your number one objective is pulling Mayor Reed down below 50% and forcing a runoff. And then at that point, you can figure out who's going to make a runoff. Well, so wait a minute. Hey. Well, hold on. So you're automatically assuming that, and, and, and you're the analyst here, you, you, this now propels Kasim Reed to the top of the list? With at least with, just on name ID alone. Um, now, we all know that there are a number of, of uh, issues and challenges that emerged at the end of his at the end of his term. But even with the field of eight being the top contender, if you're sitting at 30, 35 percent, that's still is going to put you at the top of the field. So I think that any real analysis at this point would show him, again, just based on name ID alone, would show him at the top of the field. Um, I'll be shocked. And I, I would seriously question any any survey, any poll that lists him as anything but the front runner at this stage. How soon might we see a poll? I would imagine next week. I would imagine next week. You're going to see poor quality polls out there. I suspect two or three of the candidates will follow theirs to say, hey, uh, Mayor Reed is not really as strong as he is. I'm the strongest candidate out there. But I think in terms of a quality, believable poll, you'll probably see that midweek, late week, and end of week, next week, um, one that has a 
you know, you've removed a lot of the bias and you, you're you looking at the survey for what it is and the electorate for what it is. Because listen, we've had a ton of people move into the city since he last ran in 2013. Um, and and uh, an awful lot of people who moved into the city and voted since he left office at the end of 2017, beginning of 2018. So, you know, there, there are a lot of different ways to look at it. Like I said, to me, um, I think we can see in about a week's time, we'll see really solid polling that will give us an idea. But again, anything right now that shows that he is uh, not the front runner, which could be 30, 35%, I think mm-hmm. would be highly questionable, highly suspect. Is this a race uh, through your lens, Fred, that will be won based on a candidate pulling enough votes from a variety of sectors and neighborhoods? Is that the strategy here? Because you can't just dominate in, in Buckhead or maybe dominate in Southwest Atlanta or dominate in Midtown. You've got to pull from each of these areas or, or don't you? Well, the first thing you have to do is establish a base. And the base is a group of people who are loyal to you no matter what. And then you can start moving beyond that. If you don't secure a base, then you have no real shot and your foundation is shaky. So in terms of these kind of races, and you know, as just someone who's run mayoral races in the past, multi-candidate races, the first thing we do in a situation like this is say, hey, I've got to secure my spot in a runoff. And then if I can do that, I can do that early enough with enough resources, I try to run, I run to win without a runoff. So you look at what is my base? Who are the people who, if you're Mayor Reed or any of these other people who are in elected office already, who are the people who consistently vote for me? I think that Andre Dickens has a solid footing in that regard, having won in 2013 and been unopposed in 2017. Why? Yeah, so he holds an at-large post. He unseated an incumbent in 2013. Um, and, uh, and so after unseating that, he apparently performed well enough on council that no one bothered to challenge him. Now, to show you about the quality of his candidacy, uh, or the strength of his candidacy, now that he is running for mayor, you have an ever-expanding field of people who are seeking to fill his seat. And so they could have run against him in 2017, and they didn't. I but that base is, but has that base not changed? You just said that it's a different electorate from 2017. So well, you're, not, you're not seeing any really new residents who are running for that seat. The people who are running, at least thus far, um, and people who are rumored to run, are people who have been in office or connected to city hall or county government in some way, shape or form. Whether you're talking about a, a Ralph Long or a, a Jody Meriday or a Jackie Labatt, or even I'm hearing that Keisha Waits is talking about running for that seat. I'm hearing that uh, former state Senator Vincent Ford is looking at running for that seat. All these people live in, uh, live in the, the zone uh, where you have to live to run for that seat. And none of them bothered to challenge Andre Dickens before. So I think, I think that speaks to the quality of his candidacy. And if I'm looking at the field right now, I think that it would be Mayor Reed, number one. I think uh, probably Councilman Dickens, number two. And I think that Felicia Moore is in a close number three. Um, and then and then everything else kind of falls but falls after that. And that would be my guess looking at it. Again, I've not surveyed the field, but just on the hunch and, and haven't been around city politics. I, to me right now, that's the order of the, um, the candidates. Will candidates need to raise money outside of Atlanta as well, outside of Georgia? You just said the pot is, may not be as big for all these names here. Yeah, you know, in the general election in 2017, you had about $10 million raised. And so you've got to find money from somewhere. Um, Susan Mitchell had 2.7. Peter Amon had 2.5. Um, I think Mary Norwood had about 1.8. And this is all for the November 2017 election. So... Uh, you, you're going to have to pull money. And as uh, Cesar Mitchell pulled a lot of money from across the country. And he didn't even finish in the top three. He did not. He did not. So money is not a guarantee or a guarantor of success, but not having money puts you at a strong disadvantage. So, yeah, you know, you're going to have to you're going to have to raise a lot of money to compete in this. So you got to get wherever you can get it. So if you have ties through your alumni network, through a fraternity or sorority or through your, your profession, you've got to find money and you've got to find at least a million dollars if you want to be serious in this race. So we are still in a pandemic, although this summer, due to folks being vaccinated, campaigning, public appearances won't be hindered as much. What will this summer look like with all these candidates? I think for... And should folks start expecting all these these flyers in the mail? These glossy, (laughs) four-color... (laughs) <laughs> Full color, four page, open, you know, open notes and your phones are going to bombard with text, text and robo calls. Yeah, all those kinds of things like that. Right. But I think for the next couple of weeks, you're going to see people hitting you up for money because we have a June 30th disclosure report. So the, the 
the most important deadline coming up right now uh, is going to be the June 30th financial disclosure period. So while people may roll out some negative advertisements and it'll be over the airwaves, probably not much in the mail uh, here in June. Right now, everyone is in a mad dash to raise money. Mayor Reed has got to show at least, I think, uh, close to a million dollars, if not, that to, to justify his, his position. I think that uh, Councilman Dickens and City Council President Felicia Moore are in a dash to see who can raise the most money right now and show that they can raise money even with the same Reed in the race. And then I think the second grouping of people are out there also trying to, trying to find a way to remain viable. What's a dollar amount that you think candidates need to consider in order to stay in the race that June 30th date? Uh, I think for each candidate, it's a little bit different. I think for Mayor Reed, it's, it's a million dollars. I think for Andre Dickens, it's uh, four to $500,000. I think for Council President Moore, who's already amassed a, a fairly decent war chest, I think that she needs to continue, uh, say in this period, probably raise another three fifty dollars to 400000 which will put her over a million raised. So I think that that's where she is. I think that's where Andre is. I think that's where Mayor Reed is. So Fred, a runoff is likely, more than likely, maybe not? Well, you know, we'll see when this first polling comes out. Um, you know, I think for Mayor Reed, the thing that he has to guard against is making sure that his first day in the race is not his best day in the race. So you, when you enter the race with a lot of fanfare, resources and all of that, you have to figure out a way to maintain that and to grow your vote, your vote share. Uh, we've seen it many times in, in races across the country where someone will enter the race and then they fall off, even in the presidential race. I mean, we think about it with uh, Senator Harris or Senator Booker. And just when you enter the race, it, usually that's your best day if you enter it with a lot of fanfare. So how do you maintain and how do you grow instead of going down? Fred, you mentioned this mayoral race could be nasty in terms of the campaigns and, and the messaging. But might some candidates be very careful about that, Fred? You know, so to be clear, Rose, I do not expect any negative campaigning from Mayor Reed, at least not out the box. I think that the negative campaigning will come from all of the other candidates, because, again, number one, you have to make sure that there is a runoff. And then number two, you want to be either the second place finisher or if you can go out to a runoff ahead of him, then you're in a great position. So the task that Mayor Reed has in front of him is making sure that or explaining to people why he should get a third term whether you care about crime or affordable housing or, or ethics and integrity, whatever it is, he has to explain why he, he's, he needs a third term. Everyone else has to explain why he, should, he does not deserve a third term and then why they should be the alternative. So they have two burdens to bear, so to speak, and he has one. And so for that reason, I don't think he will go negative. He should not go negative. Uh, he should come out with a bit of humility. He should come out talking about um, what he did well and what he could have improved on and why he should get a third term. But everyone else, I think, immediately has to figure out a way of how to deal with him and bring him, bring his numbers down. How strong is an endorsement from a, from a former mayor, whether it's a Shirley Franklin or Andy Young or Sam Massell? Does that carry any weight? No, I think it does to some degree or another. I think the most interesting endorsement would be the one from Mayor Bottoms, if she does openly endorse that will be the one that will, you know, that we in the media will talk about a lot and that will probably move people, but particularly if she does not endorse Mayor Reed after the way that he supported her in 2017. Um, but as far as... Yeah, but a lot has changed in four years, apparently. A lot has changed in four years, indeed. Uh, but I think that, you know, to, do, to one degree or another, um, having an endorsement from a past mayor can help. Now, what will be interesting to me is to see if... if uh, the national figures line up in this race, specifically of Vice President Harris, um, who went to Howard and served on the Board of Trustees with Mayor Reed, if she comes down and openly endorses and campaigns for him. Um, and then also if, if, Vice, if President Biden decides to get in this in this race, we know that he was supporting Mayor Bottoms. So does he decide mm -hmm. to get in this race? What do the two senators from Georgia do, Ossoff and Warnock? So there are a lot of figures outside of past mayors um, who will be called upon for sure to make a decision in this race and whether or not they do it and where they go will tell a very important and interesting story. And we should note as well, Fred, every seat in city council is up for reelection as well. We know with Natalie Archibong running for Atlanta city council president as well, you've got uh, Courtney English, former APS school board chair and member Doug Shipman, big in the philanthropic and business community. So that's another race that people will be watching. Is there any strategy to a city council president candidate aligning 
himself or herself with a mayoral candidate and the two of them tag teaming voters saying, together we can clean up City Hall or whatever their message is gonna be. Is there any advantage to that or is that risky? Well, it is definitely risky, but I and it's extremely risky at this stage in the game with so many people running for mayor. I'm not sure who you would necessarily with whom you would align, and I'm not sure who the mayoral candidates would align with whom they would align in the city council president's race. I think that that's a great question for late September, early October. If you see someone who's going really strong, or just there's been some major event in the community that could push people together, but I think right now everyone's going to at least overtly run their own races and um, and work to and work to define their messaging. Here's how things can be impacted. With Mayor Reed getting in the race, it's now, before it was about, the, I think the election was purely about crime. With Mayor Reed getting in the race now, this election is quickly becoming, I imagine, a referendum on his eight years in office. And so people, particularly people who served on council while he was mayor, will have to answer for their votes, whether they supported him or they opposed him. Um, and in some cases, their benefits, right? Because Mayor Reed's gonna talk about how crime was low under his tenure. So if I'm a council person and I, and I voted for some of the legislation, pay raises and things like that, that led to lower crime rates, yeah, I'm gonna talk about that. People are litigating some of the less savory aspects of it. Then, you know, as a council member, if I'm running for something else, I might take a, take a step back. I'm not sure. So I, I don't think it'll be a clean cut. Hey, I'm mayor, vice mayor, we're walking down the street together holding hands and saying vote for us as a ticket. There's gonna be more nuance than that. Mm, stay tuned. I'm- Asking you this question because I know you worked on his campaign before. Is Peter Amon thinking about coming back? No, he's not thinking about coming back. That $2 million that you raised stays with you. That didn't. <laughs> 2.5, 2.5. It was, it was, um, it was a race. You know, and I think that Peter would have been a great candidate for sure, but he's, uh, he's in the private sector. He's working on some, a few different philanthropic things. And, uh, you know, the question I think we'll see, for him and all the other 17 candidates, 2017 mayoral candidates, is will they endorse and who will they get behind? Let's be clear. I mean, those were a lot of votes. Well, look, there's Caesar Mitchell who's out there. There's, there's Mary Norwood. Mary I'm sure Norwood. she's not going to endorse Kasim Reed. I feel confident in saying that. I would agree, sir. It's Kathy Willard who ran Absolutely. last time. Um, you have Peter, you have you know, Senator Ford, you have uh, Kwanzaa Hall, mm-hmm. former congressman now, right? So you have a lot of people who were in that, in that race in 17, who all, all of whom have uh, constituencies who will, who could possibly weigh in on this, at least the, the, the top candidates, again, being uh, Mary Norwood. And I'm, I'm really curious to see, will she get in this race and who will she support? Um, she's running for District 8. She's expected to be unopposed. She's already raised over $300,000. So she has the ability, should she desire, to get involved in this mayor's race. Um, and if there's a runoff, I think her support will become very sought after for whoever is in the race, uh, if Mayor Reed's in there, who's ever, whoever the other person is. So you have people who are, who are currently uh, in office, you have national office holders, and you have people who ran for mayor in 17. So to see who are all who all have something or could have something to say about the uh, this election, it's going to be interesting and so dynamic. And of course, when that election is over, we head into 2022, which is a big, big election year. Yeah. Democrats and Republicans already maybe trying to figure out their strategy, not just here for Georgia, but here nationally. What are you paying attention to right now from both of those parties? And also what role progressives and those who are in the center, what role that demographic will play in 2022? You know, 22 is interesting because control of the U.S. government and the Biden agenda is is right back uh, on the line again. Right now, the Senate is 50-50 and Democrats have control because of the vice president. You have 34 Senate seats up next year, including Raphael Warnock here in Georgia. Um, And now you have Val Demings down in Florida running against Marco Rubio. So the, the, the control of the Senate is out there. Democrats have a, an, an effect of four seat majority in the House and two of those seats in Lucy Bath and Carolyn Bordeaux are here in Georgia and uh, are highly targeted on both sides for Republicans to flip and Democrats to, to hold. So within the national context, Georgia will have a say in the control of the government yet again, just like we just did. So that's going to mean another, I don't know if it'll be a billion dollar election like we had last year, but it'd be close to it. Um, so I'm watching that. I'm watching to see how 
I'm watching the redistricting process because that's going to influence both Congresswoman, Congresswoman McBath's district and Congresswoman Bordeaux's district. I'm also watching uh, what's happening out there in Nevada. I think that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then what happens with respect to the president's agenda and how the votes shake out? Uh, whether you're talking about H.R. 1, the Voting Rights Act, you're talking about the George Floyd Act. Um, we're getting to the stage of the game now that people who are up at 22 have to look at the polling to see how their positions on these major pieces of legislation will affect their the outcome of their elections next year. We actually have a segment next week coming up on redistricting, which is always fun to talk about. Indeed. So that, that every seat will be could be redrawn at the city council, school board level, legislative level. Uh, 22 is going to be a lot. And as soon as this mayoral election is done, you're going to roll right into that, whether you're talking about legislative seats, statewide seats. Of course, the big question is, will Stacey Abrams run for governor again? And if so, when will she announce? I don't think she'll announce before this mayoral election is done. But at that point, who will she support? And look, there's no secret that she and Mayor Reed did not have a great relationship. So does she decide to get involved in the mayor's race? I don't think it would happen in a regular election. But again, if there's a runoff, then she could be tapped for that. So there's a lot, there's a lot, there are a lot of storylines. I almost wish I, I had a show like West Wing or something like that, because I'd have five seasons of material just off of the next four or five months in Atlanta. Atlanta-based campaign strategist and closer look politics contributor Fred Hicks. As always, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rosa. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to send us your feedback on all the conversations and features you hear on the program. Just send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's Choice for NPR, I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org slash election 2024.